Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello. And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on destination wedding expectations for the follow-up second reception, saying goodbye to a not-so-great temp worker, tipping for delivery, and eating out of bowls. For Awesome Etiquette Sustaining members, our question of the week is about trying to speak someone else's language. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript on the origin of the tuxedo. All that's coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Dan Post-Senning. And I'm Lizzie Post. And oh boy, Dano, we are getting ready. We are, I feel like we're sitting at the precipice. We're, we're, we're like about to embark on the journey of this book launch. <laughs> we, we, we absolutely are. By the time this show airs, we will have been on that journey for well into it <laughs> quite a while. But you're right. There is a moment of anticipation and I am feeling it as well. Dan and I are headed to Tuxedo Park this weekend and we can't wait. Um, it won't be in next week's episode, but it will be the following week's episode where we will tell you how the journey went. But we are headed back to the place where Emily grew up, a place that was very special to her heart, a place where in her day, a lot of the members of Tuxedo Park helped to influence her etiquette writing. And so I think it's really, it's going to be really exciting and interesting to be in a space that kind of has so much Emily vibe, I feel like. <laughs> I know it's, we're it's not just like going entwined. back to her era. But yeah, it's entwined. Maybe that's a better a better word for it. <laughs> there is a family history. There is a history of Tuxedo Park. And the two are linked. And like you, I'm feeling the excitement. And a big part of that is that I've never been to Tuxedo Park. And I meet people that have been. You and I both. Last yeah. night, you and I were talking to Chris Albertine. Big shout out to Chris Albertine. It was so good to talk to you. And we found out he'd been to Tuxedo Park and done very Tuxedo Parky things. He did. He had done very Tuxedo Parky things at Tuxedo Park. It definitely surprised me, though. Chris is sort of our, like, rough and rough and tough, like, cynical New York attitude that would be so delightful to hear back when we were, we were actually recording on the mic in person with him. And we miss all of his wonderful comments that he would make in the background of the show. But it's fun to think about, about him. It, like, you know, maybe even in, like, a, a turtleneck and a blazer or wait turtlenecks aren't allowed there um maybe in a button-down shirt and a sweater and a blazer kind of like tromping around in that very new england setting 
Well, and, and blue jeans aren't allowed some places at Tuxedo Park, the club as well. And you're I think right, you're Chris, not allowed to wear them anywhere on the property. Well, I, I, I will be well within all rules, but uh, <laughs> Chris's standard outfit or uniform, I, I'm just, when I picture him, I picture him in blue jeans and a black turtleneck. Yes, yes, There's very, like, a, and the, like those two things are like listed on the dress code as not not to go here. He was Steve Jobs style before Steve Jobs, and yes. imagining him in different attire antiquing around Tuxedo Park is just, it's a delicious image, and I can't wait to be able to share stories when I'm sitting around with people like Chris, and they say, oh, Tuxedo Park, I've been there, and, and I've, I've <laughs> read books about Tuxedo Park, and have heard family stories about it, and particularly stories about Emily and her father and her father's role designing and and being the principal architect behind the development of Tuxedo Park. And I'm just really excited. The idea of walking around the grounds that were at one point imagined and, and conceived of by our great, great, great grandfather is, yeah. is really exciting to me. And there's a, a personal connection that I feel, the sort of ancestral connection. Mm-hmm. And I'm also just curious because, like you said at the very start, this was such an important place to Emily. It was so impactful for her, the experiences that she had as a young person and a young adult at Tuxedo. And they really influenced her writing about etiquette and about how society functions. I'm really excited because there's – on the way down, we have like a – it's like a five-hour trip for us to get to, get to Tuxedo from Vermont – and on the way down, I plan on re-listening to as much of the biography as I can. And right now, the particular part of the biography about Tuxedo Park that I'm remembering is the part where they were taking like kitchen trays, the kids, the teenagers, and they were sliding on them down some main staircase at like, I, I think the, the clubhouse of yeah. uh, Tuxedo Park. And it was such great fun. It was such great joy. And then the fun came to a stop because some of the boys were teasing that they could see some of the undergarments. And when I say undergarments, I don't mean the kind we wear today. I mean, like, pantaloons down to the ankles, you know? And the, the, the boys were getting giddy and teasing the girls, you know, about what they could see and it was promptly put to a stop. But the idea of Emily and her friends as teenagers doing silly childlike things is deliciously wonderful and just paints her in my imagination as a whole human who had yeah. moments in her teens where she was running around and doing things and being adventurous and fun, you know? And I think that over the years, you know, I mean, we know that a lot of people sort of incorrectly think of Emily as being incredibly stiff and strict and mean and only wanting tradition, tradition, tradition. And we know that couldn't be further from the truth that, you know, she really valued people. She looked to future generations, that etiquette wasn't about putting people down that sort of thing but it's equally delicious to just think of her as a kid romping around and being playful and silly with her friends and having crushes and you know reading books that changed her mind or opinion i don't know it's it's very delicious to think about it all so i'm excited to um to dive back into the biography on our way down and then just soak in all the parts that it talks about tuxedo in once we're in tuxedo and I know it's something that you and I have talked about a lot, and it's something that we've brought up on this show, but the process of 
writing the centennial edition of etiquette and really going back to basics, starting on a, a fresh blank sheet of paper has made both of us really reflect on Emily and what her project was and, and how she worked and worked on it. And there's just something that feels really right, really appropriate, dare I say, about mm-hmm. starting our launch of this book by going back to a place that meant so much to Emily personally and was a place that was so directly tied to her writing of that first book. Oh, Dan, I couldn't agree more. And I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to spending a whole weekend with you, Cousin Lizzie Post. I know! We don't ever do this! I'm, like, really stoked about that, too! (laughs) I I think I said on Monday when we were starting to finalize our travel plans that while there would be reasons why we might take separate cars, I'm going to be traveling at least part of the way with four other people, and... At the same time, we're we're trying to figure out a way to actually get the second part of that trip happening together because in some ways it'll be really good to, and this was my language, get in the zone. (laughs) Yes. Really spend some time getting in the headspace of this book and this work and... And Emily. (laughs) And Emily. And really bringing our attention to what's an important and big event for us personally, for the Emily Post Institute, and one that I think if you could have gone back in time and told Emily about would have brought her a lot of joy. I think so, too. I think so, too. I am really looking forward to it, cousin. And I am also really looking forward to getting to some questions in this show we have today. Well, we have some good ones. Shall we answer some questions? Let's do it. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions, and you can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com, leave a voicemail or text message at 802-858-KIND, that's 802-858-5463, or you can reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst, on Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute, and on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your social media post so that we know you want your questions on the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our first question this week is about a destination wedding and some drama. It begins. My kids were asked to be in my sister-in-law's wedding. The wedding is in Sonoma, California, and we cannot attend. When asked, we gave a likely not going to be able to attend response, as the flying restrictions were not favorable for young children at the time. We were talked to, in quotes, by our mother-in-law and father-in-law and the older sister-in-law, and told we were wrong and that we needed to make this happen because we are family. There was a huge pro-con list made and discussion before we answered, and in the end we made the best decision for our school-aged daughter who struggles in school. My sister-in-law picked new flower girls. We thought this was over. My sister-in-law is having a local reception about three weeks after the wedding and asked me in May if she could include the girls for hair and makeup for the reception. 
I was clear in that my husband and I felt it was unnecessary for all of that, since my girls are not part of the actual ceremony. I even told her I would get the girls' dresses, as they are just guests at this point. Tonight at dinner, my mother-in-law was trying to talk me into calling my sister-in-law to discuss ordering dresses for the girls, for pictures. Because the reception is two months away, and we are running out of time. I said, I made it clear that we felt we are just guests at this point, and we should get to wear what we want. My mother-in-law looked at me like I am crazy, and then said, I am going to have the sister-in-law call you. Seriously, we had to turn down the girls being in the wedding as too much about their destination wedding didn't work with my family. We get the destination wedding is hers, and it is not like we asked her to change it for us, and we just asked that she accept that we cannot make it. We have been clear and upfront from the beginning, but we seem to keep having the same battles over and over again. Is there etiquette for this? Anonymous. Anonymous, thanks so much for the question. This is certainly not something there's direct specific etiquette for this exact scenario, but there's a lot of etiquette in a number of different parts of this scenario that I think is is standard that we can lean on as we start to go through it. What I'm hearing is really two very different perspectives coming together. One is Anonymous, who's written to us and who says, hey, look, we aren't going to do the destination wedding thing. So at this point, just count us out. Don't think of us as important to your wedding is what I'm hearing here. Like this is the decision we've made. We're, we're not going and that happened. You've invited us and we've said no. And what I'm hearing on the other side of things is that the second reception is pretty important to the bride, the sister-in-law who is the bride. And it to me, what I'm hearing as I read this is that even though our question asker isn't really interested in having her daughters participate as bridesmaids or as flower girls or even just in being very dressed up for this event, the sister-in-law who's getting married and having the second reception I think is actually doing a lot to try and include her future nieces in her wedding and to be a part of the day. And my guess is that I'm I'm thinking she's sitting there thinking, oh, I could include them in getting dressed up and doing, you know, hair and maybe even a little makeup. And that might be a child level makeup where it's a little bit more for play, but but still comes out looking good, you know. As opposed to thinking like full adult makeup for children, which I know happens for pageants, but for a wedding, I don't, I wouldn't be expecting that. But I'm hearing generous offers of including the girls in kind of that getting ready theme that happens for weddings and that happens for belated receptions or second receptions. And it sounds like this is a second reception. And I'm hearing wanting to get pretty dresses and really make them a part of things without putting a lot of pressure, I think, on the parents to pay for or do these things. And so I'm kind of hearing one side, the the bride, wanting to be very inclusive and really celebratory of their big day. And it, it is a second big day, but it's a big day that is meant to include all of the people who couldn't make it to the big day that was the destination wedding. So I'm seeing a lot of generosity. I'm seeing a lot of inclusion. I'm seeing a lot of positive things here. But what I'm hearing from our question asker is that this is too much. 
this feels out of sync. This doesn't Mm. feel like what they want to participate in. And they're not seeing it as generous and inclusive. They're seeing it as burdensome. And when you have two perspectives that are that different, I think it is very hard to come together. And Dan, I'm just going to go out on a limb here. I know I've been just talking on a blue streak on this one. But when I put the two together and I think about the fact that it's the bride's day, and yes, it is her second day, but this is also a sister-in-law relationship. This isn't a third cousin once removed. This isn't a coworker who you only pass by in the hallway every now and again. This is a sister and yeah. soon-to-be sister-in-law, a very close relationship. I'm going to be rising to the occasion. And I'm going to say this is their party and their thing. And I want to show my support. And I'm going to participate well in that. And if it means that my daughter's are going to get to do some really awesome dress up. I think that's great. If I'm a parent who really doesn't believe in that type of dress up for young girls, then I might want to express that wish, but I'm still going to participate well and show up in whether it's a semi-formal or formal attire, you know, I'm going to, you know, smile for those photos because this is, you know, It might be my partner's siblings, you know, marriage, but it's still family and it's still it's very close family. And I think we want to honor the very biggest days in their lives. And they're throwing a second reception in hopes of including a lot of people who couldn't be there for the first. Lizzie Post, I was so happy to let you go on because you, <laughs> I think, articulated very well a lot of the thoughts that I was having about it. And mm. frankly, we're doing a better job than the way I was thinking about <laughs> it because I noticed my thinking kind of clarify as I was listening to you talk. And I I really appreciate the way you're separating two issues. The question of is there etiquette around the destination wedding itself? And then is there a, a different set of expectations around your participation in a, a second reception that's happening locally? And like you, I think that that it's so reasonable to decide that a destination wedding doesn't make sense for you, that it's just not possible for your family to participate and participate well. It's 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 a big ask in a lot of ways, and it's completely fine to do that. And like you, I was also hearing what was then coming as a response from the the future sister-in-law of, well, there's the second reception happening at home. And I'm even hoping to get some real pictures that are going to have a, a special feel and that maybe have everybody coordinated or presented in a way that that is organized or structured or feels like a part of the wedding experience that we're yeah, trying to like build. Yeah, it kind of shows that family participation or, yeah, I get what you're going for there. And I also hear your acknowledgement that this could feel in in some ways like it's a little too much for someone, that they wouldn't want to participate in exactly that way. Mm-hmm. And I also like how you just acknowledge that those are two very different perspectives about this thing. And when you said that, I also found myself then saying, and you know what, because it's the wedding day of this one couple, I would make every effort that I could to yeah. try to see it from their perspective. Yeah. And that is a big ask when you say to to yourself or to anyone else that what's important or what what is potentially important in this moment is your ability to really step outside yourself and really try to identify with with what it is that that you don't agree with or that doesn't seem to make as much sense to you and see it from that perspective and a wedding might be one of those occasions in life where you really decide to make that effort and you really look for a way to get to a yes that's going to 
make someone feel really good about their wedding day and really good about the family relationships that are going to start in a new way from that point forward. Dan, I think that is just such an excellent, excellent point. And I, I will just say that because we have two very different perspectives here, that one of the best things you can do when you see yourself experiencing that is to try and imagine what you look like from the other person's perspective, right? So if for anonymous to think about what do I maybe look like from my sister-in-law's perspective? Am I just being really reluctant to participate in anything regarding her wedding? That might feel really alienating and isolating to someone who's coming into a family and celebrating what most people consider like the most monumental event in their life. And it's it's worth just taking a minute, just the same way we're taking a minute to think about that bride and are these things over the top things to be asking for? And thinking about what that perspective might look like, it's always a good exercise to just think for a minute, what do I look like from their perspective? And I want to acknowledge something else that can be tricky about doing that. And I don't have a a clear sense for from the way the questions asked, but I want to acknowledge that it's entirely possible that there is some tone or some attitude about the way these requests are being made that gives them a feel that's that's different than the way we're thinking about them mm-hmm. with this exercise as a reasonable request. Yeah. That I could hear a mother-in-law asking in a way that was highlighting the fact that you hadn't been at the destination wedding mm-hmm. or that this is the bare minimum someone could do. And we just really think that it's so obvious that you would do it, that there isn't any acknowledgement of what it does ask of someone that maybe you've got a kid that doesn't like to get dressed up or for whom, Just getting them to the party and participating is going to be a big enough challenge, much less having them participate well in photos. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And having acknowledged all that, I think that for the purposes of the the, the kind of decision that we're talking about making, one that someone might remember for a long time for all the reasons you just said – that really making an effort to remove any of that tone from your decision-making, if it was there, is is probably helpful in that it's going to help you – make a decision that's less emotional and more about building and growing relationships. Anonymous, thank you so much for the question. It certainly is a sticky situation, but we hope our answer will help. How can this dispute be settled? Well, we know some different ways of settling disputes. Will one of them help here? A compromise helps settle some disputes. Each person gives in a little bit, and then both can have part of what they wanted. Enjoy Awesome Etiquette and want to help our show grow, there are a number of ways you can support. You can become a sustaining member at patreon.com slash awesome etiquette, or you might choose to engage with our show sponsors and their special offers. Sending us your questions, feedback, and salutes keeps our show flowing with fresh content. And of course, you can always help the show by getting friends and family to subscribe and listen. Every download counts. All of these efforts are great ways to help us keep bringing you more awesome etiquette. And of course, thank you for everything you've already done to support our show. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive. 
as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Our next question is a professional etiquette question titled Temp Troubles. Mm. Hi, Awesome Etiquette team. In June, a temp joined our small team of five people to help cover our administrative load when we unexpectedly found ourselves short several team members at once. One of the positions we were hiring for was for the position the temp was covering, an administrative coordinator. Unfortunately, our team was not thrilled with her performance, and despite copious training and consistent constructive feedback, it did not improve. She applied for the permanent position, and we hired a different and more qualified candidate. As soon as the position was filled, we immediately let her know that we would not be renewing her temporary contract due to end in 10 days. Given that there are palpable hurt feelings and disappointment, what is an appropriate gesture for our temp's last day with our team? How do you say goodbye well without saying, we'll miss you, but not enough to keep you around? Typically, when a staff member leaves, there are flowers, a gift, and a card signed by the team. I raised the question with the temp supervisor, as I'm not in a managerial position, but did work closely with the temp and helped make the hiring decision. I was told it was too awkward and weird to do anything. To quote my colleague, quote, She always knew this was a temporary position and it would be insulting to do anything after not hiring her. This doesn't sit well with me. Although I did not endorse hiring her for the position, she is still a kind woman who helped us get through a prolonged period of stress at work, even if she did not meet our performance standards and was an occasional source of frustration. What do you think is an appropriate way to wish her well? I'm leaning towards giving her a card, just for me, expressing my thanks for her help and wishing her well in future endeavors. It seems cruel to ignore her leaving completely after working with her daily for over three months. Any suggestions about how to be courteous without rubbing salt in the wound would be appreciated. Thank you. Sincerely, Anonymous. It's a great question. Anonymous, I just want to say bravo. Yeah. Really well done. I love the way you're thinking about this. I love the solution that you're contemplating. I think you are right on every front. And I would even go so far as to say the one question that you asked that I was saying, oh boy, at least this part I could help with, you ended up answering very well yeah. by the end of your question. <laughs> I know, I saw that too. It was the, how do you say goodbye well without saying we'll miss you, but not enough to keep you around? And <laughs> as I was imagining the, the sample script as the question went on, I was thinking something like, well, you, you thank them for the work that they put in and you wish them well in their future endeavors. And yeah. That was the sample script that you suggested for yourself to include in a card that you would issue individually. And I think that is exactly the right tone. I think that's a great course of action. You raise the issue with the manager who could be reasonably responsible for more of a group effort at this and didn't get a, a, a warm response to that. I think there's room to maybe take another try at that, maybe mm -hmm. with that kind of sample script and approach in mind without necessarily questioning the reasoning that the manager had for not wanting to do it. Because I think those are natural feelings. Also, people find goodbyes awkward sometimes, and particularly mm -hmm. when one party might not be feeling great. I have a little melody in my head, breaking up is hard to do. <laughs> and it's it's oftentimes difficult. A friend once told me, well, breakups are hard. That That's why you're breaking up. Otherwise, it would still be going on. Right, exactly. <laughs> and 
it is a theme. It is a consistent theme that has emerged on this show that in the same way greeting well is important, that parting well is also important. And the fact that it can feel awkward doesn't have to mean that we don't do it well. Mm -hmm. And I think you can acknowledge that awkwardness and acknowledge the potential traps that you don't want to emphasize or point out that the work wasn't good enough to have it continue or to oh, yeah. have this person be chosen to be the one to take the position permanently. But there is space. There's room to thank someone for the work they've done and to wish them well in the future without getting into those issues. And I think that you've, you've found that space with the way you're thinking about it. And if the, the group isn't going to do it, it would be entirely appropriate for a colleague or coworker to do that on an individual basis. Absolutely. And I would even go a step farther to say that if you wanted to and you really felt it was warranted, and again, that's only something that Anonymous is going to know. Um, but that maybe offering to go get a coffee together on their last day or the, you know, take, take them out to lunch or something like that. If, if it was in your budget, if you felt like it would be appropriate to your relationship with the person doing something like that is, is perfectly fine to do. I feel like Dan, that that's something I had done for me a number of times throughout the years in my work career in different ways. I really appreciated it. I often appreciated that kind of a goodbye coffee or a goodbye lunch or some kind of a, a little bit of a something special, something different. And whether it's just a card or it's a card and a coffee or a card and some lunch, I think any three would be appropriate. It's really nice, I think, to find the positive in something that didn't end up working out. And that is that portion that, that you and that Dan has now commended you on. And that's the part where you say, thank you so much for the work that you have done. And we wish you well in the future. And that is, as Dan says, perfectly appropriate. Lizzie Post, I think that's a really nice thought. I think it, if, if it's possible to go a little extra step to make the transition out a good one, I think that that is time and effort well spent. Anonymous, thank you so much for the question. We appreciate an opportunity to answer and hope that our answer helps you navigate this transition. And we hope that the new person in the job does a great job for your team. When you work in an office, meeting the public, whether it's in person or by telephone, is an important part of your job. It can be pleasant like this. Or it can be like this. Our next question is about a delivery dilemma. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I have a question about tipping for delivery. When you tip at a restaurant, a percentage-based tip makes sense. A higher bill will indicate either more people at the table or a nicer restaurant with more service knowledge on the waiter's part. When doing delivery, unless the restaurant order is overly large, it does not require more work on the deliverer's part. Neither does the level of restaurant the food is ordered from. It also has little to do with service, especially since some apps make you tip when ordering and do not allow you to edit later. Does a flat rate tip make more sense in this case? A rate based on the time it takes for delivery? Or is there a reason for a percentage-based tip? This is also complicated by the fact that some apps let the driver see the tip when taking the order. I look forward to hearing from you on this issue. Love the podcast. Anonymous. Anonymous. Lots of anonymouses today. <laughs> Anonymous, thank you so much for the question. 
I feel like this is when we start to like etiquette ourselves into a corner. How about like, it? Like, right? I mean, who who has not done this before when they're like sitting there thinking about paying for delivery and they're on an app or they're on a website or they're, you know, about to place an order and they've got to think about the tip. And we're not talking about the delivery fee or service charge. Those are different from the tip. The tip always goes straight to the person who hands you the food. And that's really, really important. That's like our biggest thing when it comes to tipping is especially delivery people, that that's the one you really want to pay attention to. Whether or not you do a percentage, whether or not you have your own rate that you tend to think is fair or appropriate or that works with your budget, or maybe it's both fair and appropriate and works for your budget. Um, I'm hoping that's the case. Or whether it's the amount of time the delivery takes, or whether you decide to maybe not do 20%, but 10%, or not do 15%, but do 10% because it takes longer, or maybe things were forgotten. I mean, it's there's a reason why it's discretionary to some degree. And that's because there are many factors that could go into how you end up with the exact amount that you end up handing over. But what we really care about from an etiquette perspective on this, and Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but what we really care about from an etiquette perspective is that we are ensuring a tip gets to the delivery person, the person actually handing you the food. That's number one. And that that tip is reflective of the thank you that you want it to convey. And for some people, that might be, you know, I was really annoyed. My food took like an hour longer than y'all said it would. And I I don't feel good paying more than 10% right now. Or I don't feel good giving more than $5 right now. That happens sometimes. But it doesn't mean you don't give the 5 or you don't give the 3 or you don't give the 10. Whatever it is that the number that's going to be appropriate based on what you ordered and and how you think about delivery I tend to run with 10% of the bill just because I, I find that's that's easy for me. I'm really consistently ordering the same thing each time I order, and that 10% feels really good. Sometimes when I order something smaller, that 10% doesn't feel like enough. And I actually end up with an order that was maybe only a $15 order, but I'm tipping $5 on it because a $5 tip for me in my region on my budget feels really good. Um, and feels appropriate for for my area and for for what I'm ordering and that sort of thing. So lots of different ways you could think about it. Dan, you're definitely letting me just run wild with this one too. Um, but lots of different ways that you could think about it. And ultimately, the big one is you just don't want to make the mistake of not doing it. Lizzie, I enjoyed listening to you talk because in many ways, my approach was very similar. And my, my answer to this question is coming from a very personal place, and that's that where I live day to day, food delivery is not possible, at least prepared food. It's just I'm, we're too distributed an area for people to, to deliver food well consistently. So for me, getting um, restaurant food delivered to me is a special treat that I get to enjoy when I'm traveling, when I'm out on business for work or when I'm out traveling for pleasure. And because it's such a unique experience for me, it always feels special. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I find it really easy to go to that place of of feeling like this is such incredible service that I'm Luxury. receiving to bring you this food right <laughs> to you. And and it's not 
It's it's not the and I'm gonna be a little bit bad here. Oh, the the room service food that I'm used to being pretty mediocre, yeah. and where I can really choose restaurants from the area and and get something that I really like. And for me, when I'm traveling, that's such a a, a great way to enjoy being in a new place. Mm-hmm. That I find it easy to make those little decisions that you're talking about, which is what did it take to get this meal to me? Oh. I'm in a region where it's a big city. This is coming from two blocks away. It happens very quickly. And and, and it feels like a, a little tip would be appropriate because it was a little bit of effort that made it happen. It was like a no big deal delivery. <laughs> exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and and I still want a tip, so I do. And, and, and I feel good about that. But there are other times where... I'm at a hotel and it's in some part of New Hampshire that's not a lot different than Vermont, but a little closer to a big town. But it means someone's <laughs> got to go drive a little bit out of their way. And I know that there's not going to be another delivery right in the immediate area. And it's at a time of night that there aren't a lot of people out and about doing things. There aren't a lot of delivery drivers. Maybe they get a little bit more because I know it took more time and more effort and there's not as much volume to the business. And having that service available to me is such a treat. I want to pay into that service culture and and I want to pay that forward and keep it happening. Mm-hmm. So that's a a big part of my thinking and it aligns exactly with what you said where I'm thinking about the the particulars of the service that's being provided. And a little bit like you, I go with roughly a 10% marker in my mind. Oftentimes for a smaller order that 10% feels a little small for me and I find mm-hmm. myself drifting over it because even for a small order it still took the person the effort to bring it all that way. Yeah. And absolutely. If it's a a larger order and that 10% starts to feel like a substantial portion and like that's enough to cover it, then I I feel good about that and I go with that. Anonymous, thank you for sharing with us your own etiquette geek out on delivery tipping. It was delightful to go down the rabbit hole with you, all the different thoughts that come into Lizzie, I'm going to interrupt because you're so right. There are so many great etiquette details on this question. And one of the things that comes up is the (laughs) apps that ask for the tip before the service is provided. If you have questions about whether or not an app is taking a percentage of the tip or whether it presents it as if you're paying for the service ahead of time, it is always Mm -hmm. okay. It is always appropriate to tip a cash amount when you actually receive the meal. And um, Mm -hmm. it's maybe not as convenient for you doing it if you don't have cash on hand, but it is always convenient for the person receiving it. And that is something that usually there's some kind of a note section that's meant to say things like, you know, door around back or we're actually the upstairs apartment or something like that. You can also use that to write in cash tip so that they don't just think there's no tip being added whatsoever, but they'll know to accept a cash tip when they arrive. Anonymous. Thank you so much for the question. We do appreciate any good etiquette geek tipping question. Thank you so much for the chance to talk about it on the show. Our next question is titled, Difficult Dish, to Daniel and Lizzie. To begin with, I'd like to let you know I love your podcast. My question goes this way. In a book written by one of the world's foremost etiquette experts, there is a statement that reads, Only dogs eat out of bowls, when referring to soups and stews. Pho, ramen, soba, and a variety of other broth-based noodles are served in bowls. A statement like the one quoted above, in my opinion, reflects not only poor choice of words, but a certain degree of sanctimony. The complete opposite 
of good etiquette. What's your opinion on this? Thanks and regards, Shrividya. Ah, thank you for the question. This is a really tough one because without a little bit more information or context, yeah. either about who the world's foremost etiquette experts might be or I'm wondering if it's us. <laughs> what the rest of the sentence looked like or what the, the, the previous the or following is. information is, it's hard to know. And I will confess part of me is even a little nervous or wondering if maybe this is out of one of the books from the Emily Post library or catalog, yeah. because it's certainly true that in the last hundred years, the ways that we write and talk about etiquette have changed a lot. And I oh, yeah. like to acknowledge that we are far, far, far from perfect. And there are a lot of things in print that I would look at today and I would say, Ooh, that, that doesn't sound right to me. Right? So <laughs> I am hesitant to, to call out the sanctimony and scold it. Yeah. Also because being a scold is not great etiquette. No, <laughs> that that's true I, too. <laughs> we make a real effort at the Emily Post Institute not to look for examples of bad etiquette that we point out as a way to be instructive. Or to compare to other experts out there. Yeah, exactly. Precisely because that's not the kind of spirit that we want to have around the whole topic of etiquette and around our approach to etiquette. No. And having said all that, I can certainly see how a statement like this could be grating and offensive and oh, yeah. how – comparing the way anyone does anything to the behavior of a dog could be insulting. Yeah. And w without that, without the context, without knowing, it's hard to know exactly. But if that is what's going on, I, I would acknowledge that it makes me nervous because I don't like the sound of it. But I also, it makes me nervous because I'm wondering if it's ours, to what extent I might sound like that at some points also. Yeah, or the, yeah 20 years from now, you'll be cringing at everything we've, we've written, right? <laughs> <laughs> that could that can that can happen. I think for me, Dan, this particular quote it reminds me of a quote that you and I know of and uh, have used in the past of Emily's, where she basically talks about eating very messily and how that could suggest eating like an animal, and that doesn't bother me quite as much. Because this particular one, when you say only dogs eat out of bowls, and I'm assuming here that we mean eat directly from the bowl, not using a soup a spoon, you know what I mean? And something like that, just for those who are, who are a little curious. How else would you eat a soup or a stew than out of exactly. a bowl? We know that there are many other cultures that eat d d or drink soup directly from a bowl and that there are different ways of doing this appropriately. I think even in our edition, we talk about the fact that if a soup bowl is like often a brothy soup and has handles, it's a good indication that you're supposed to sip it directly from the bowl. Watch your host, you know, of course. But to suggest that a specific type of animal and to say it in a degrading way and say that it's only a dog would do this or only an animal, quote unquote, beneath, you know, beneath a human would do this. That I do find really offensive. And I find that um, maybe it wouldn't have been offensive 50 years ago, but it or maybe even 20 years ago. But now that does sound offensive to me. And it doesn't sound like the way you would want to present this idea. 
And this is exactly the kind of thing that when we do the updating work, and I know that this most recent version of Emily Post's etiquette has been completely written from scratch, so it's in a little bit of a different category. But in the past, we were often looking for particularly these types of things in our language and whether or not they sounded outdated, if they sounded cringeworthy to us now, and how to update them to get the point across without the drama, without the need to paint this type of a picture, the only dogs eat out of bowls type of a picture. And so I, I, I'm, I'm first of all, totally with my cousin. This is not the kind of thing that we would say is good etiquette. And we also wouldn't say it's good etiquette to tell an, another etiquette expert that their etiquette is bad or to highlight it as being terribly written or something like that. And again, this may very well be a quote from an Emily Post book. And so it's something to be aware of. But what I think is such a shame about the only dogs eat out of bowls thing is that it takes what I think is supposed to be. And again, as Dan says, we don't have the context of any of the other etiquette being presented in that book around these uh, six short words. But it takes the point, which I am guessing was probably about using your spoon, not bringing your face to your bowl um, but instead using your spoon to get the, the soup or the stew to your mouth. And that it's just trying to describe a Western tradition of soups and uh, stews and things that, that um, we would eat here in America or in Europe. And that anyone eating in this Western tradition would want to know if they were served something like a soup or a stew at a more formalized dinner, or maybe they're traveling, whether it's for work or for pleasure, and they're wanting to understand the American etiquette. The soups that are listed in the question, pho, ramen, and soba, aren't necessarily like American-based. Their, their cultural base is in a different culture where... Eating soups is actually there. There are very different styles of eating these particular soups. Dan, you and I were talking before we got on the mic about how the slurping of noodles and the eating of soup, specifically when it's very hot and to get it in hot, but to not burn yourself, this slurping thing happens that oftentimes we're suggesting you don't do that in Western dining, but for these particular soups and in those particular settings, it would be incredibly appropriate to slurp and get the air on the food so it could get into your stomach, but you're getting the broth while it's still hot and the noodles aren't breaking. And there's all kinds of etiquette to it that you'd want to read about that we might think uh, from a Western perspective is, is just different from how we eat soup when we're thinking about a Western table. And I like the way you're parsing out those as separate issues, Lizzie Post, because it is nice to be able to talk about expectations within a tradition without necessarily getting dismissive of other traditions yeah. or judgmental about other traditions or ways of doing things. I think it's really important to be able to talk about social expectations around the table and around how we share food with each other and enjoy the experience of dining together. And I guess hearing you talk about that, it's bringing me back around to, I, like you, I feel that it's a shame, it's a disappointment that language like, well, only dogs eat out of bowls mm -hmm. starts to make that more important and subtle distinction about different kinds of expectations going with different kinds of meals and different kinds of service and different kinds of tables and utensils and foods. 
harder to have and harder to have in a way that's caring, compassionate, understanding, constructive. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, it's why we remove that type of, I mean, when you read the 1922 edition, like Emily throws out some pretty big opinions and like, and they're not far off sometimes from this only dogs eat out of bowls, but pulling it out, I feel like, and as we've honed the language over the past hundred years, the more that that language is caring and compassionate, I think it gets exactly to Shravidya's point, which is that isn't that the opposite of good etiquette? And it is. And we're trying, you know, we're trying to make sure that those kind of snappy comments don't derail us or um, distract us from the very good etiquette that could be surrounding them. We start every show talking about how we like to approach etiquette from a perspective of consideration, respect, and honesty. And while I don't hear a lot of respect here, I also want to like you say, acknowledge that we're all potentially not at our best sometimes. So when I hear a question like this, it asks me to apply that lens to myself. And Absolutely. it's a really good reminder to be as respectful as I possibly can and to really hold myself accountable in those ways. So in that regard, I really want to thank Stravidya for bringing us this question and giving us an opportunity to think about it. Thank you so much for the question. Now that the soup is served, Betty sees that the crackers are passed. Floyd passes the crackers to Dorothea before he helps himself. Apparently the guests are waiting for Betty to pick up her spoon before they begin. But naturally the guests give no indication of having noticed any error on Bob's part, since that in itself would be impolite. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Just remember, use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your post so that we know you want your question, feedback, or salute on the show. If you think that you would use a heart emoji to describe your feelings about awesome etiquette, please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You'll get an ads-free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content, including live calls. Plus, you'll feel great knowing that you help to keep awesome etiquette on the air. To those of you who are already sustaining members of the show, thank you so much for your support. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today we have feedback from Kristen on questions about whether or not you're pregnant. Mm. Dear Awesome Etiquette, I have a suggested sample script for the hopeful new mom who is fielding questions about whether she is pregnant yet. What about when there is news to share, you're definitely on the list? Oh, I like it. <laughs> I do too. The feedback continues. I thought the phrase, when there is news to share, left enough wiggle room to allow one to not share news before one is ready, if there is news, without lying, and to also politely remind someone it's a brazen <laughs> question to ask, without directly reprimanding the question asker. I hope that helps. Kristen, it definitely does help. Thank you so much for this suggested sample script. We really appreciate you sharing it with our audience. 
I want to affirm that. And you've reminded <laughs> me to get the word brazen back into my oh, such uh, a good vocabulary. Word. Such a good word. Kristen, thank you for sending us the feedback. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your feedback or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to prep for our road trip to Tuxedo Park by reading from Tuxedo Park, A Journal of Recollections by Albert Foster Winslow. Dan, what do you have for us today? This reading comes to us via Cindy Senning, who brought this book up the other day because she heard that we were about to embark on this little journey. Today we're going to be reading from a section appropriately titled The Tuxedo, and it begins on page nine. During the 1970s and 80s, considerable interest surfaced about the dinner jacket, universally known as the tuxedo. The interest was initiated in large measure by the media or by groups whose livelihood was confined to the manufacture of formal wear in the New York City area. The manufacturers attempted on several occasions to stage large promotional gatherings in tuxedo. These gatherings never materialized because Tuxedo Park does not favor commercial extravaganzas. However, during this era, it was also suggested by John Barrett's article in the January 1983 issue of Esquire that the dinner jacket first appeared in 1887 at Saratoga, New York, oh, worn oh. by a New York City dandy by the name of Barry Wall. Look out now! Controversy! The Tuxedo <laughs> Club historian's reply to this fable was that if indeed such were the fact, the dinner jacket would then be known as the Saratoga, <laughs> not the Tuxedo. Tuxedo. <laughs> tuxedo residents in later years had accepted the fact that the tuxedo dinner jacket first appeared in America in Tuxedo Park, and they were inclined to accept the newspaper report of Tuxedo Park's first autumn ball held in October of 1886. The tuxedo version was predicated on humor and the bizarre jacket introduced by Pierre Lolliard's young son Griswold and his friends on that occasion. Hmm. They felt the tale inconsequential, and therefore it received minor mention in the 1886 through 1936 club book and its centennial addendum of 1886 to 1986. Over the years, many more stories have surfaced regarding the true origin of the tuxedo. The following is an excerpt from the oral history of Tuxedo Park, as related by Herbert Claiborne Pell Jr., son of one of Tuxedo's founding members. In 1973, for the Oral History Department of Columbia University and presented to the Tuxedo Park Library. It is a charming commentary on the times. It begins, In England, in the old days, men smoked cigars. The general feeling was that it was only degenerate dudes who smoked cigarettes. Gentlemen always smoked cigars. A lady didn't smoke at all. The result was that lots of women objected to smoke. They wouldn't even have smoking in the house because they said the smoke clung to the hangings. A big house would have a smoking room, and sometimes they even provided special jackets. A man would take off his dress coat and put on another to smoke in, so that the smoke wouldn't hang on his clothes when he came back to join the ladies. In some cases, they had little hats, like Turkish fezes, that they wore so that their hair wouldn't smell of smoke. They had a short jacket, which they wore while smoking, and it got to be more or less the custom in the informal society at Tuxedo, when they went out to dinner, to wear a smoking jacket. 
Others coming up to visit decided that they would like to get the same thing, so they would ask their tailor to make them the kind of jacket that was worn at Tuxedo. That is how the garment got its American name. In Europe, it's called a smoking jacket, which is the correct name. In England, it's now called a dinner jacket, but it was originally a smoking jacket. That is the reason why Tuxedo, for a great many years, was the only place where the short jacket was worn always with a white waistcoat instead of a black one, because it was a substitute for a dress coat. That's the end of the reading. We now return to the book. While in all probability there is an element of truth in Mr. Pell's narrative, it does not tell the whole story. Several other persons have come up with theories about the origin of the dinner jacket, better known as the tuxedo. Probably the most valid would come from the pen of Joseph Earl Stevens Jr., who has been diligent in his mission to research and conjecture. His paper, The Prince and Mrs. Potter, written in 1979, attributing the introduction of the tuxedo in America to James Brown Potter and his 1988 paper, Grizzy's Lark and a Legend, can both be obtained at the Tuxedo Park Library. Fortunately, there is so much more of significance to the community than the introduction of an informal evening jacket designed for men that it is best to leave all further discussion of its origin to those who are at the fountainhead of dinner jacket opinion. The certainty of it all is that the dinner jacket, or the tuck, was born in tuxedo. And then there's a little concluding section called the tuck. There is a correct way to refer to the dinner jacket universally known as the tuxedo, and there is an incorrect way. One is proper, and the other is gauche. In its abbreviated form, the tuxedo is properly known as a tuck, T-U-C-K. Those who were not part of the beginning are in the retail wholesale business or are otherwise not informed pronounce the noun tuck as tucks. A sure way to spot an insider is to note how the dinner jacket is referred to in conversation. Communities throughout the world have pronunciations indigenous to their section of the world. For instance, the British pronounce derby, the race for three-year-old thoroughbreds run annually at Epsom Downs, England, as Darby. Tuxedo has its pronunciation, tuck. It is esoteric, but it is not a shibboleth. It is merely a term of endearment rarely recognized by alleged authorities of current vintage who sometimes like to be referred to as historians. <laughs> Dan, what year was the, the Tuxedo Park a Journal of Recollections written? In 1973. In 1973. Interesting. Interesting. It, uh, so many different thoughts are cropping up after hearing that. One is it's fun to hear things like the jacket appearing in Saratoga and and then the, the reply being, well, we don't call it the Saratoga, do we? <laughs> you know what I mean? That one cracked me up. Or how about it's not snobby to call oh. it a tuck. It's just an inside club thing. It's, <laughs> it's just correct. <laughs> I, I like that. And then, of course, as we know, like many of us refer to the tuxedo as a tux. You know, hey, did you rent your tux this weekend? You're going to rent a tux for that? You're going to wear your tux for that? And I think that 50 years later, it's safe to say that you're you're not sort of below some insider level if you're calling it the ducks. I will say that in my time working at Michael Kehoe's, which was a, a high-end men's clothing store, I'd never heard it referred to as just a tuck, as, as the tuck, uh, the way that they're describing, that none of... 
the people within the world of men's suit knowledge <laughs> that I worked with who prided themselves on their knowledge. That hadn't come up. That was a new piece of information for me, which was kind of cool to hear. For me too. And it kind of reminds me of the difference between the biography that's truly Emily Post, written by her son, full of family love and lore, and the Laura Claridge biography, the very well-researched and authoritative telling of her life in a, in a very well-documented way. This has a little bit of that family feel to me. Just, just a little bit. <laughs> it does. It does. Well, thank you so much for bringing that to us. I hope maybe it settles some debates about where the tuxedo originated. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> But it was certainly delightful to to hear and to pick up a, a few new tidbits about the tuxedo. One look at you, one look at you, and then I knew I had to love you. You caught my eye, and there was I, enraptured by. Than just a breath of spring, you're everything come true. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. And today we have a salute from SG. Dear AE. My salute is to my new boss. I just started a full-time job for the first time in over 10 years, and I have been nervous about meeting people that will now be a big part of my life. During the hiring process, I got to know my new supervisor, Eva, and they are one of the reasons I decided to take the position. Starting on day one, they have made an effort to make me feel comfortable in my new position. They have done every little thing that you would talk about on this show. <laughs> Made good introductions, greet me each day, check in periodically about how things are going. I can feel them making an effort to make me feel welcome and at ease. These little things have added up, and I am so grateful, and it has made a big difference to me. Now, off to work. Best, SG. SG, thank you so much for the salute, and what a great job your coworker is doing. It sounds like they really do have a welcoming nature and an understanding of what it must be like to be new at some place. And often those are the kinds of things we talk about, as you say, you know, the, the, the kinds of things you'd find on this show. It's really nice to hear that you're experiencing them in real life at your new job. I noticed that hosting checklist. I see what you're doing there. Thank <laughs> you so much for the salute. And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something and everyone who supports us on Patreon. Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, however you like to share podcasts. You can send us your next question, piece of feedback, or salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. 
On Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we are the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member of the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. It helps our show ranking, which helps more people to find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. And Bridget.